Hey, welcome to PT Snacks Podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're tuning in for the very first time, welcome. But what you need to know is that this podcast is meant for physical therapists and physical therapist students who are looking to basically master the foundations, but in bite-sized segments of time. And while last time we talked about abdominal aortic aneurysms, today we're going to be talking about cervical myelopathy. So essentially, we're going to define what it is, how do we look for it, and then what do we do about it? If I was going to summarize the episode, that's what we're doing. So what is cervical myelopathy? Well, essentially, cervical myelopathy is just anything that narrows the vertebral canal where the spinal cord lives. And so this could be spondylosis, it could be age-related um, which degeneration is primary cause of cervical myelopathy. Um, so it might be caused from osteophyte overgrowth or ligamentous hypertrophy or ossification, um, which you'll see in patients of a higher age range, right? Uh, it could even be from neck trauma. Um, maybe it's from a car accident or a sports injury, or maybe that patient had trauma in the past at a younger age, which can actually accelerate the generative process. Maybe they have a herniated disc that's causing a space-occupying substance in the vertebral canal. That would narrow it, right? Um, or they might even just be born that way, right? They might have congenital spinal stenosis. That means they're born with a narrower canal, essentially. So not enough space for the spinal cord to live, really. I've also seen in research where they will link this to dynamic factors where maybe this patient has abnormal repetitive movement of like their cervical region during flexion and extension, which can cause spinal cord irritation and compression, especially if you're thinking about the environment of the spinal cord. Likely at some point, someone's going to have, um, they might even have a combination of all of these factors. They might have some osteophyte overgrowth with abnormal motion, something like that. Kind of hard for us to see, right? Um, I don't know about you, but I wasn't born with x-ray vision. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, is is this patient in front of me displaying signs and symptoms of myelopathy? So the most common initial causes of myelopathy are they're going to have a hard time with fine hand dexterity, and then they might even complain of gait instability or falls. And that's really hard to isolate, right? Uh, Some... Some patients may just ignore this and attribute it to, hey, I'm just getting older or, you know, just kind of ignore it. So oftentimes when we see it in the clinic or by the time, if you're, if you're rounding with a neurosurgeon, by the time they come in those doors, it might already be progressed to a level where they are experiencing some pretty significant symptoms. Other symptoms they may complain of are neck and upper extremity pain. They might have weakness and sensory impairments more so in the upper extremity, but also in the lower extremity, because keep in mind, with the spinal cord in the cervical region, if we're talking about cervical myelopathy, if the spinal cord is affected, it can affect all the nerves that go below that point, which would also include the lower extremities. But you might find that your patient has paresthesia with weakness or wasting of their hands. At the level of the myelopathy, that patient is going to present with lower motor neuron changes, which means weak and hyporeflexic. But all of the levels below the level of the lesion are going to have upper motor neuron signs. So this is spasticity and hyperreflexic. So when we're testing for this, keep this in mind. 
But remember that there are upper motor neuron tests, such as Hoffman's, uh, clonus, which greater than three beats would be positive, right? Or Babinski tests, where maybe that patient complaining of neck pain, maybe you need to evaluate these things in upper and lower extremity. There's also something called a finger escape sign, where you ask the patient to hold their fingers extended and close together, and then you're going to see if the ulnar digits drift away into abduction or flexion. Gait changes, you might notice when they're walking in, their gait is more wide-based and ataxic, um, which you can quantify with like a 30-meter walk test or a tandem gait test. They might have a positive alert sign or maybe have changes in pain, temperature, proprioception, or just general dermatomal sensation just because they might have their spinothalamic tract or their posterior column or and spinal roots compressed in this region. So it will present itself in certain ways, right? And then in more severe cases, that patient may even complain of bowel and bladder changes like urinary retention that's followed by overflow incontinence. Other things that we may want to differentiate um, or that you'll see in research articles are amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, multiple sclerosis, maybe some central cord syndrome, Chiari malformation, Guillain-Barre syndrome, a syrinx, peripheral nerve entrapments, um, or even things like intracranial pathology like a brain neoplasm. So typically, hey, if we're suspecting this, the sooner that we intervene for these patients, the better and the safer for them, right? And so typically that patient, if they haven't already, will get, um, will get imaging Usually most patients get an x-ray first, um, but then the next step is typically to diagnose this condition in MRI so that you can visualize both the canal and the nerves and tissues. They will also do a CT to see if, um, to diagnose ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament, see if that's a cause of the canal narrowing, um, and then also even just flexion extension x-rays to see and evaluate ligamentous stability. Now, typically on imaging, you'll most commonly see regions or problem areas around C5, C6, or C6, C7 levels. With this condition, usually surgery is indicated if it's true myelopathy. And the reason being, it, it doesn't typically get better. If it's true spinal cord compression, we really want to avoid the length of time that, a, that the spinal cord is compressed, because the longer it's compressed, the less chance we have of it actually getting better. In fact, it gets worse with time and then the less chance we have of it being able to completely heal. The significant rates of decline in ADL impairments uh, with time. So they'll, they'll say 6% in one year, 21% in two years, 28% in three years, 56 in 10 years. But of course, it depends on if they're, the level of severity, if their symptoms actually match up or if we need to look into something else. Uh, ideally, it's best to combine imaging with clinical exam and history. Now, for a surgery, they might utilize an anterior or posterior approach. Um, from what I've seen, and this also depends on surgeon preference, of course, too, and um, the patient that's in front of them, but anterior, they'll often use if they have significant kyphosis, if it's one to two levels, or if they have an ossified PLL. And then posterior approach, they'll commonly use for greater than three levels. They have canal stenosis, posterior compression, or uh, congenital stenosis. So 
That is cervical myelopathy. Obviously, there's more to this than what we can cover in this episode. But if you have any questions at all, you can reach me at ptsnackspodcast at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at uh, pt underscore snacks. And then there are a lot of links below if you want to support the show. Honestly, you can support the show by just telling a friend about it that you think would benefit from it or write a review, show some love. I love hearing from you guys. But um, or if you need some CEUs, there's a link below. Check it out um, for MedBridge. And if you use the promo code PT Snacks Podcast, they're actually going to give you $175 off an annual subscription, which is awesome because with that, you get access to like thousands of CEUs, live webinars. And then if you're uh, treating patients and you need to be able to print off exercise, like an exercise program where they can actually watch videos and stuff, they've got that for you. So definitely check it out. It's what I use myself for my clinical practice. Um, And then I will just leave it at that. But thanks so much for listening and until next time.